At this time, let me invite you to turn to John's first letter, chapter 2. First John chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 18, and if you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, this is found on page 1219. First John chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 18 and go as far as verse 28. And so pay attention. This is the Word of God. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Now little children, Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. So far from the Word of God. Last week we considered the coming of the Antichrist, and this week we consider the presence of Antichrists within the church. And in this letter, John Uh, opened the whole thing in chapter 1 by declaring that the proclamation of the Word of life, the proclamation of who Jesus Christ is and what He has come to do, leads to communion with the triune God. And communion with God is evidenced by walking in God's light. Or another way of saying that is living in God's will. Uh, Your communion with God is evidenced by the way that you live. True doctrine leads to true experience, and true experience is demonstrated in true living. Faith and life are inseparable. You behave in accord with your beliefs. Your convictions are expressed in your conduct. And, the, uh, and, and we can think about this in many different places. In fact, 
maybe no place clearer because of how many examples are provided than in the book of in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, where in chapter 11 we see belief and behavior connected in the lives of so many Old Testament uh, Christians or so many Old Testament believers. Um, uh, by faith, so-and-so did this thing. By faith, so-and-so did that thing. Faith and love, love and faith expressed in trusting obedience. This is the Christian life. And while John has been highlighting uh, the fruits that flow from our faith in chapter 2, actually all the way back in chapter 1, uh, confessing our sin in chapter 1, or our obedience in chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, our imitation of Christ in verse 6, our brotherly love in verses 7 to 11, spiritual maturity in verses 12 to 14, and even separation from the world in verses 15 to 17 highlighting these fruits that flow from our faith, here John highlights that which threatens the faith of God's people. John has been centering on our behavior, but now he centers on our belief. Uh, To guard against the trap of false doctrine, we must first of all pattern our lives according to the Word of God, And we must secondly live in utter reliance and prayerful dependence upon God's Spirit. That's really going to be the answer to this this challenge, this trial of false doctrine, Word and Spirit. But that's next week. John warns that some have been so deceived about the Christian faith and life that they have rejected Christ and they have abandoned His church to their own injury and loss. This rejection of Christ and defection from the Christian religion is called apostasy. Apostasy. And it reveals that there are antichrists within the church. And John tells us, antichrists are those who teach or hold to uh, heresy, which is a particular kind of false teaching that actually rejects the gospel. It is something that is that if you believe it or if you live it out, it so is contrary to the gospel that it puts you outside of the gospel. puts you outside of the Christian religion. Christ warned of this Himself. In Matthew 24, he says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. I want to say just one brief thing about this. Uh, We've explained that apostasy is the rejection of Christ and defection from the Christian religion. Uh, We know, maybe personally, people who have been so hurt or harmed by some uh, challenge in the church. They've actually been harmed by the very thing that John's talking about here, that they leave the church and they don't know how to get back in the church. They haven't left Christ, but they have left the church. We're not talking about that today. That is an important subject and it needs to be talked about, but that's not what this passage is about. It's to so leave the church and to so reject Christ that they step out of the Christian religion. 
Here, John distinguishes between those who have been anointed by God versus those who have been influenced by the false teachers of John's day. This is addressed in churches often today, and it's especially not addressed in churches that seek to draw in multitudes by way of performances and programs or ease and entertainment. This would seem to be something that would distract from those kinds of uh, intentions. In fact, one pastor of a previous century said, the early Christians condemned false doctrine in a way that sounds almost unchristian today. But friends, we're brought to the Word of God. We're brought to the early Christians. We're brought to the church wherein we see false doctrine condemned. And we stand with the body of Christ because we stand with Christ. Well, as I said, there's much here. We'll consider today uh, apostasy, the theme of apostasy, and, and apostasy that results from false doctrine. And then next time, uh, we will uh, consider uh, the anointing of God and sound doctrine. Well, I have two points to help guide us through our text this morning. Uh, first, God's warning of apostasy. God's warning of apostasy, which will be a survey of New Testament passages. And then secondly, God's will for apostasy. Uh, God's will for apostasy, which will make more sense when we get to it. So, first of all, God's warning of apostasy. Look again at verse 18. Children... It is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. We see John here transitions in some sense this is another complete thought and he uses this term of family intimacy and endearment children he has been their pastor he has been uh, an under shepherd to them a father in the faith and he wants to emphasize uh, the the care and the nurture of christ for his children He explains that the recent departure of their friends and their loved ones out of the church community was due to the influence of antichrists in their midst. John speaks to their apostasy. Now, apostasy literally means to move from where you stand or to move from where you stood. It's two words to stand and from. So it's to move from where you stand. And apostasy, um, uh, when it relates to, well, let me say this, there are various causes of apostasy, including persecution, the allure of the world, false teachers, uh, personal neglect of the means of grace, and internal corruption of the heart. 
But false teaching is at the heart of conflict here. And so when we talk about apostasy, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, to, well, in terms of false uh, teaching, sorry, we can talk about to teach or to hold to any type of heresy or anti-gospel doctrine. But also, we can speak more broadly and say it's to renounce the Christian religion and to abandon Jesus Christ. The, ex- uh, the experience of this defection is confirmed, or at least is, is talked about in every New Testament book except Philemon. 26 out of 27 New Testament books highlight the dangers of apostasy or the nature of apostasy or the presence of uh, apostasy. Jesus preached the parable of the sower and the seed. One comes and He scatters the seed and it falls upon different soils. And the seed is His Word and the soils are the various uh, hearts of people. And, And it speaks of how these various people uh, receive that word of God. And, and it's a, one of the things that that parable is for is to warn against apostasy, apostasy and the dangers of not rightly receiving God's word. Three out of four soils do not rightly receive the word of God. In other words, there are three wrong ways to, re- to hear the word of God and only one right way. Further, Jesus warned, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now this passage is sometimes misunderstood, because Jesus is not saying that false teachers are going to come and declare themselves to be the person of Christ. Notice that Jesus said, that many will come in my name saying I am the Christ. Rather, these will claim to deliver the doctrine of Christ to the church. They will come in His name. And so they shall say that their opinions are Christ's mind, Christ's will, Christ's doctrine. It's not so obvious as one saying, I am the Messiah. Oh, we know to reject you because we already know who the Messiah is. No. They will come trying to convince you that it is in His name and with His doctrine they speak. According to Paul, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. This last day's apostasy is one of the events that is to happen prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to Him. Paul also warned the churches upon His departure that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20. I have references to all of these things. I'm just, I want you to hear the Scripture's warning after warning of uh, apostasy. When he sends Titus to Crete to establish and strengthen the church there, Paul writes to him about the need for qualified elders to be raised up in the local church. 
He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So we're not just dealing with the issues of um, apostate teachers. We're dealing with the issue of Christians. People who profess the faith, turning away from Christ, abandoning the church. Paul even experienced some who had rejected uh, their faith and a good conscience, and they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Men such as Hymenaeus and Alexander whom Paul himself delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1. The letter to the Hebrews is pregnant with warnings about apostasy. Take care, brethren, the author writes, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. 3.12 And those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth face a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Chapter 10. A fate more severe than the fate of those who sinned under the Old Testament. Peter, another apostle, describes people who have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then he says, even though they've escaped the defilements, they still get entangled in them. Their last date is worse than the first. Their ending so dreadful that it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Peter compares apostates to dogs who return to their vomit and lick up and eat their vomit. Isn't that gross? Or pigs who wash and then return to the mud. Peter's entire second epistle is a warning to Christians to expect trials and suffering so that they won't fall away from their own steadfastness. Jude, the brother of Christ, calls the church to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, warning that certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And here, John. And here John speaks of the, these antichrists who, who went out from the church community showing that they were not really of us. Within the church, there were those who professed faith in Christ until they didn't. They denied the Son, and they tried to deceive the anointed of God. Apostasy is a real thing. It is a real threat. It is something that we need to be watchful of and aware of in our own hearts. This passage that John writes here actually sheds light on John's probable motivation for 
increasing and strengthening the faith of these Christians into greater confidence and assurance in their Christian walk. He wants to discourage their apostasy. He wants to prevent their apostasy, just as others in their midst have walked away. Notice how he advises against falling away. All the way back in chapter 1, what is he saying? Walk in the light. Commune with the triune God and walk in His light. And here, how does He advise against falling away? Abide in God's Word, verse 24. Rely upon the Spirit, verse 27. But it is important here to recognize that heresy in the church is a tragedy that creates division and defection. It is a terrible thing to have false teaching, to have deceiving uh, doctrines being taught in the church. And further, it makes it all the more difficult to recognize error when you receive that error from someone that you trust. From one who has counseled you and who has supported you and has sacrificed for you. It's harder to see the error when we are when we have these strong relationships in the church. And we should have strong relationships in the church. but not to the neglect of the Word of God. And this is why assaults from within the church are much more painful and much more doubt-producing than assaults from outside. And what this does is it draws a question. Maybe it draws multiple questions, but in my preparation, it drew a question that we must consider. Why does God permit false teaching in the church? Why does God permit false teaching in the church? And that leads us to our second point. God's will for apostasy. Look again at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all were not of us. Again, uh, John writes here in uh, verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. John here implies that God has sovereign purposes for allowing errors and false teaching into the church. There are several other places in Scripture that say as much. Uh, consider 1 Corinthians 11, where uh, the, the church was in this cl- conflict over the Lord's Supper and the abusive way in which it was being celebrated. Uh, rich people bringing their food and, and eating at tables. The poorer people coming and not having anything. Rich people drinking to the point where they were drunk. 
And what does John or what does uh, Paul say? When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved didn't among you. It's quite a statement. Or uh, Paul speaking of uh, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 that comes into the church, into the temple of God, and deceives uh, many. And it says that there were some of those who did not love the truth to be saved. And what did God do? God will send upon them a deceiving spirit so that they will believe the lie in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but approved of wickedness. Young people, I just heard about uh, your class in Sabbath school. About how uh, the Lord sent this uh, evil spirit to Saul because he had hardened his heart. The Lord had a purpose in all of that. We need to understand that God uses these challenges as instruments to refine and strengthen His people. That He seeks to make His people more resilient in their faith and more committed to His truth, to Him. This is essential to the spiritual development of every Christian and of the church as a whole. John highlights two things about those who have remained amid false teaching in in verses 18 to 28. Two main things. He highlights, first of all, the Spirit's ministry among God's people. He speaks about this as the anointing that they've received. And secondly, he speaks about their faith in the Word of God, their knowledge, agreement, and trust in God's Word. I want to highlight that next time, but I want you to see it even now. He says in verse 20, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. This is significant because we heard before in uh, Jeremiah 2, God rebuking the whole people. Uh, But here, uh, the Spirit seeks to distinguish between uh, those who are uh, abiding in the truth versus those who have not. He wants to, the Spirit wants to uh, encourage and to assure and to reassure the people that if they remain, there is nothing, uh, nothing to be Um, held up about themselves. There's no bragging rights for those who have uh, sustained in the midst of this false teaching. But rather, it is the Spirit of God who has held His people. And that this false teaching was intended in part to make them more resilient in their faith. Well, I'd like to consider reasons why, then, God permits false teaching in the church. And I have seven. 
Seven reasons why God ordains false teaching. First, God ordains false teaching to be in the church, to test our faith and our sincerity. To test our faith and our sincerity. Uh, False teaching acts as a trial uh, that tests the genuineness and the strength of a believer's faith. It challenges you to examine your own beliefs and, and the reasons behind your beliefs. Is your, is your faith rooted in the Word of God? Is it rooted in uh, your uh, favor of a particular teacher? If your faith is based on shallow or insincere reasons, you may be more susceptible to being, persua- uh, being swayed by false teaching. In fact, James encourages uh, the people that there are good reasons for suffering, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The trial of apostasy is given in 1 Peter 1. Listen to what Peter says. The trial of apostasy comes upon you so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is to uh, not only be an evidence of your faith, uh, but it is, and this would become another point, wouldn't it? It is to be that which results in the glory of Jesus. A second reason, God ordains false teaching in the church to reveal our true understanding and conviction of the truth. To reveal our true understanding and conviction of the truth. The presence of errors forces you to engage more deeply with your understanding of the Word of God. It compels you to take up and read the Word of God to study and understand the Scriptures more intently, more carefully. Uh, Passages that you may have taken for granted all of a sudden become extremely relevant to the thing that's challenging you. It was always relevant, but not always to you. And so... Uh, as you study the Word of God, it solidifies your convictions. In Luke chapter 16, verse 29, Jesus tells of a story about a man uh, who, uh, who dies and he wants uh, a witness to rise from the dead and go warn his, his brothers about hell. And in that, the punchline of the parable is that the Scriptures are considered a greater witness to the truth of God than even one who returns from death. In 2 Peter 1, Peter speaks about his upcoming departure by way of persecution. He knows that it's, he will not be long in this world. And he calls the church not to put their hope in some next pope, but rather to remember and to pay attention to the Bible, which he says is a lamp shining in a dark place, meaning your heart. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Stay with the Scriptures until Christ returns. That's Peter's message. Amid false teaching, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, in a second letter to Timothy, to remain in the Scriptures which will keep you secure and equipped. So, God ordains false teaching not only to test our faith and sincerity, but to also reveal our true understanding and conviction, and if, and if needed, to shape our understanding and conviction. Thirdly, God ordains false teaching in the church to prove and promote our spiritual maturity. To prove and promote our spiritual maturity. The process of discerning truth from error is a sign of spiritual maturity. You who are well-rooted in your faith, who have uh, a, uh, a right knowledge of the Scriptures, you are better equipped to identify and reject false teachings. Uh, you, you are uh, able to demonstrate your spiritual growth and maturity. This is why it's so important to not just have the catechism memorized, kids. That's an important thing. But it's not as important as understanding how that catechism is actually, how it lays upon the foundation of the Scriptures. You should know where in the Scriptures these truths have been brought forth. In Hebrews chapter 5, the preacher speaks to uh, the Jews, his audience, and he says, you know, you lack spiritual maturity, and yet you are the one who have the, the least amount of excuses because you should all be teachers by now. You've had uh, the Word of God, the oracles of God from Abraham, from before. And yet, you need the milk of elementary principles to be taught to you again. Whereas the solid food of sound doctrine, that's for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Think about children. I want you to think about little kids. Maybe you've been around little, little kids. Like the little kids who still sit in the high chairs. Uh, even, Even then, you know that they've gone on. They've grown a little bit. By if they're sitting in high chairs, because that means they can eat solid food. Right? They're not just drinking milk. They need more to sustain them. And it's true spiritually of Christians. We need more than just, you know, uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Wonderful passage. Essential passage. But we need so much more. We need the meat of the Word. And what God does when He permits false teaching to come into the church, He pushes us to look for more Scriptures than just John 3.16. Fourthly, God ordains false teaching in the church to stimulate our doctrinal clarity. Uh, Confrontation with false teaching often leads to a, a clearer articulation and, and understanding of correct doctrine. It leads to a greater uh, precision 
in rightly dividing the word of truth. It prompts the church and its leaders to clarify and reinforce the truth, and thereby strengthening the doctrinal foundation of the community. Again, Paul tells Timothy, in the face of the threat of false doctrine, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So God ordains false teaching uh, in order to test our faith and sincerity, in order to reveal our true understanding and conviction, uh, in order to prove and promote our spiritual maturity, in order to stimulate our doctrinal clarity. Fifthly, God ordains false teaching to expose our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. When error arises in the church, it can helpfully point out weakness or areas of neglect. Things that we haven't really been considering. Things that haven't been taught. Or things that haven't been uh, showing up in our discipleship. Or things that we don't really understand because we really can't articulate or say. This exposure allows for corrective measures and growth in areas that might have been previously overlooked. It's, it's a way to draw us back to what is the most important things. You know, uh, sometimes churches get really focused on some particular doctrine to the neglect of other things, and false teaching will help us. Well, wait, wait, well, what do we believe about the divinity of Christ? I guess we haven't looked at that in a while. <clears throat> in Ephesians 4, Paul says that Christ set up the teaching ministry in the church so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. <clears throat> so, it exposes our weakness and vulnerability so that we will get back on track. Six, <clears throat> God ordains false teaching in the church to affirm our commitment to God's truth. The challenge of false teaching forces believers and uh, the church as a whole to affirm their commitment to the truth. It becomes an opportunity to reassert the foundational truths of the Christian faith, to stand firm against deviations. It's really amazing uh, how false teaching uh, can can come in and actually distract us from things that are found even in something like the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> even something as simple as that, uh, we, can, we are brought to reaffirm our commitments. In Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 11, we're told that uh, Paul was visiting multiple groups and he goes to these Bereans uh, who wanted to hear the Gospel and it says that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the Word with great eagerness and they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether the apostles' teachings agreed with the Word of God. Friends, you should be encouraged. You are encouraged. I encourage you 
to take what is said from this pulpit and to put it under the scrutiny of the Bible. And not just what I say, take our confession of faith and our catechisms and our uh, other standards and put them under the scrutiny of the Bible and see if what is being taught is true to the Word of God or not. If you think about it, God's truth helps you to test me. And that's a good thing. Seventh, God ordains false teaching to demonstrate His sovereignty over and protection of us, His church. And allowing errors, God demonstrates that He is sovereign, that He has the ability to protect and preserve His people. That even in the presence of false teaching, God's truth ultimately prevails. And those who are truly His, remain under His care and guidance. That's why they didn't depart, because they were uh, of, of God, and therefore they were of us. <clears throat> the Lord is faithful, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, the Lord is faithful, He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And that includes His false doctrine. We heard... Christ's warning in Matthew 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so that, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He shows that He's able to hold us. Now here's the, here's the, uh, the secret. <laughs> uh, these, these seven points are really just various ways of saying almost the same thing. God ordains false teaching in order to keep us and to sharpen us and to make us more like Christ, to strengthen and increase our faith, to strengthen and increase our assurance, to strengthen and increase our hope. We have to be tested. We have to be tried. Uh, And it is in part by uh, false teaching. And that means then that God ordains false teaching for our good. But He also does it. He also does it uh, to, to harden those who are not His. To reject those who have a heart to reject Him. That is to say, He puts before them the false teaching. He allows the bait to be set and they take it as bait. And He's not wrong in doing so because that is their heart. That is their heart. We don't know uh, if they'll remain in that state of rebellion, but it certainly does show them in the moment that they ought to trust uh, some profession of faith. They ought not to trust uh, some time that they went up to the and said a prayer, they ought not to trust uh, anything uh, because their faith has uh, been demonstrated as inauthentic. And they need a faith that is in Christ and not in anything else. But if they will cling to their false doctrine, they will, uh, in the end, have to 
uh, receive the consequences of such things. We see this in verse 28. Little children abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. That implies that there will be people who have no confidence and who will shrink away from Him when He appears. Well, let me just wrap this up then. We've considered uh, the warnings of apostasy, God's warnings of apostasy, as well as God's will for apostasy for the good of His people. But uh, we want to consider just two questions of application as we close. How do you respond to false teaching? In other words, how are you responding to false teaching? And then secondly, how have you responded to the false teaching of your heart? First, how do you respond to false teaching? Have you been tempted to ignore the Scriptures out of a blind trust for leadership? This is a real challenge. It is a real thing that faces every branch of the church of Christ. I hope that it is not lost on you. That in the last, just last five years alone, we have seen many challenges in terms of the ministry. We have seen accusation brought against ministers and elders. We have seen men deposed from office because of their unrepentance in terms of their sin. We have seen uh, other men supporting those and leaving the ministry. Uh, We have seen uh, uh, secret sins brought to light by um, the providence of God. And we ought to be humbled it is not a time for uh, you know, the ministry to rally around uh, their buddies. It's a time to be humbled and to repent and examine our own hearts. The Apostle Paul speaks to the outwardly pleasing behaviors of these apostates and their teachings. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as uh, missionaries of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, we cannot expect false teachers to look bad on the outside or to speak obvious words of heresy that's void of truth when instead... They subtly mix their leaven of error within the bread of truth. We should not be so naive to think, oh, only only those who teach clear and obvious uh, heresies, these are the ones to watch out for. They will deny the Son. They will attack His deity, His pre-existence, his humanity, his historicity, his miraculous conception, his messianic work, his resurrection, his present enthronement, his kingly authority over all things. And not this, they that not only this, they will attack all areas of orthodoxy. But be clear, it always goes back to the Son. 
Calvin said, as Christ is the end of the law and the gospel and has within himself all the treasure of wisdom and understanding, so also is he the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. J.I. Packer writes, the mark of the false prophet or teacher is self-serving unfaithfulness to God and his truth. It may be that he says what he shouldn't, but it is far more likely that he will err by failing to say what he should. He will gloss over all the tough questions and issues, as did the false prophets in the Old Testament who went around saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They wouldn't speak the tough word, calling for repentance, nor suggest that Israel was out of sorts spiritually. Instead, they brought groundless comfort, lulling people into a false sense of security so that their hearers were totally unprepared for the judgment which eventually came on them. There are teachers in the church today, Packer continues, who never speak of repentance, self-denial, the call to be relatively poor for the Lord's sake, or any other demanding aspect of discipleship. Naturally, they are popular and approved, but for all that, they are false prophets. We will know such people by their fruits. Look at the people to whom they have ministered. Do these folks really know and love the Lord? Are they prepared to take risks, even hazard their life for Jesus? Or are they comfortable, inactive, complacent. If so, they are self-deceived, and those who have irresponsibly encouraged their self-deception will have to answer for it. Anyone who's in a position of spiritual leadership who fails to teach the more demanding, less comfortable, narrow gate and rough road side of discipleship becomes a false prophet. Are you aware of false teaching? Are you prepared for it? Are you you tied to the Word of God? And then secondly this. Just as we ought to be more vigilant of false teaching within the church as opposed to that outside the church, I need to be most aware of the false teacher in my own heart more than what's out here. Because, friends, I have the tendency to lead myself astray all the time. And so do you. And your false teaching won't necessarily send me to hell. But the false teaching of my heart could. Professing faith is not the same thing as possessing faith. Walking away from Christ and His body does not begin with an innocent long walk off a steep cliff. It's subtle. And it's gradual. And it starts with infrequency in your communion with God. And then, doubts and Worldly desires creep in. And then comes the absence from worship. Just once in a while. And then isolation from the fellowship and support of other believers. 
And before you know it, you have renounced the Christian faith. You've abandoned Christ. Wherever you might be along that trajectory, just just stop. Just stop and turn around. If you can't turn around, just stop and talk with someone who can help you. It is not worth it. There is nothing in this life, there's nothing in this life to cling to in a way that makes you forfeit the next life. Jesus Christ said, a man can gain the whole world and lose his soul. I don't know what keeps you from Christ today. You do. But let it not be the false doctrine of your heart. Be warned from this text today. And seek out the message of the Scripture. Seek out the Gospel. Seek out uh, the forgiveness of God in Christ. Seek out the right standing that Christ provides for us so that we can stand before God and live. We hope better things for you. What is said here in verses 24 and 25, we pray for you as well. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord God, well, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for Your ordination, Your permission of false doctrine to be present in the church. We know that You intend it for the good of Your people. Lord, we do uh, pray that we would not have a sense of condemnation from this Word. For in Christ there is no condemnation. But we would hear it as a loving warning so that we would be more vigilant over our own uh, souls. That we would watch our heart from which flows all the manners and issues of life. That, Lord, You would use even a warning of false doctrine today to help us draw closer to You. To help us uh, understand uh, our convictions. To help us uh, have our faith proved. To help us recommit ourselves to Your truth. And we do thank You for Your Word and Spirit And we do especially pray for those who have gone out from our midst. You are the Good Shepherd. And you know how to go after your lost sheep. And we pray for them week by week, Lord. Because where there is breath, there is still hope. And so be merciful to these Draw them to Yourself. They may have uh, turned away from You, but they cannot hide from You. And we pray, Lord, 
uh, that you would be a merciful and loving shepherd. Show us that you are God who loves to be gracious. And bring, by faith and repentance, those who have gone out of our midst. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.